Hello, and welcome to COVID Minute Podcasts. I'm Dr. Jan Patterson, Professor of Medicine, Infectious Diseases, and Associate Dean of Quality and Lifelong Learning at the Long School of Medicine, UT Health San Antonio. Today, our guest is Dr. Jason Bowling. He's a professor of medicine, infectious disease, also at the Joe R. and Teresa Lozano Long School of Medicine at UT Health San Antonio. He's a clinician and a medical director, healthcare epidemiologist at University Health, our affiliated health system. He's the go-to person for infection prevention issues at our place. So um, this month is really the third anniversary of COVID in our community. I remember three years ago, we gave our first grand rounds. Uh, Dr. Bowling and Dr. Cadena were involved. Uh, we, we gave our first grand rounds on COVID uh, just around uh, this time. And everyone was very concerned about PPE. There were no treatments. There were no vaccines. Some healthcare workers in New York had died of COVID. There was a lot of anxiety and fear. And also in the community, shutdowns started right around this time three years ago. Um, and then a few months later, we first started this podcast. There were some inpatient treatments that had emerged, but we were still waiting for the vaccine and for outpatient treatments. And of course, now we've had several renditions of the virus, several vaccines, several outpatient treatments. So it's a good time to review where we are at year three. Technically, we're still in a pandemic, but some would say that the phase we're in now, the virus is endemic. We'll see what Dr. Bowling says about that. Welcome, Dr. Bowling. Hi, Dr. Patterson. Thank you for having me. Where are we in the pandemic now, locally, nationally, internationally? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I, I think the introduction is great. We've been, had such a tremendous past three years. So many different things have happened. Um, we've learned a lot, I think, about obviously COVID-19, but how to track things, look at things. Um, so one thing we still have right now is pretty good information about COVID-19 cases, and that's something we might start to lose some visibility on moving forward. Currently, fortunately, we seem to be having declining cases. So internationally, the World Health Organization just this week actually published a monthly report on the status of COVID-19, and it has decreased in the last 28 days, a 58% decrease in new cases, 65% decrease in deaths, and this is in all six global regions that they monitor. So there's not a hot spot right now around the globe where they're seeing an increase in cases. So that's good news. We're also fortunately seeing de decreased cases nationally as far as new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. Those are all on a decline, which is good. And then locally, we're also seeing declining cases. Our hospital numbers have remained low. We haven't seen a bump in hospitalizations. Um, and our, our percent positivity is a little bit trickier to manage. And that's why we're seeing a little bit of discrepancy in some of these CDC metrics in that county tracker that the CDC uses for measuring COVID activity. Yeah, and so, you know, the, those, uh, the, the CDC metrics are kind of confusing. So can you elaborate a little bit about the two different metrics that they use and, and the differences in them and, and, you know, what it really means? Sure, and I think this is a really important point because it is, I agree with you, it, it's, it's very confusing. Even the names are similar. So one is community levels and then the other is community transmission. Now that's being shortened to transmission because it was too close to community levels. Community levels is what we're supposed to use outside of the hospital or healthcare facility. So if you know, we're in the community setting and it, use, it looks at new cases per 100,000 per seven days, but really the indicators there are looking at measures that impact healthcare systems, strain on healthcare systems. So it's the higher of new admissions to the hospital per 1,000 people per seven days, or the percentage of staffed 
hospital inpatient beds that are occupied by a COVID-19 patient. And, and those for our Bear County area where we're recording this have been low for weeks, which really reflects what we know is that people don't end up with, in the hospital as often with COVID-19 anymore. And so there's not this strain on the healthcare system. The other metric is this transmission level, which is what healthcare systems are supposed to use. So where we have more vulnerable patients. And that one looks more at the number, the higher of either new cases per 100,000 versus percent positivity of nucleic acid amplification tests, the most common one being these PCR tests. And as we know, PCR tests are really used in hospital settings or clinics because most people are using home tests. We're not, and those are not PCR tests. Okay, so given all that, should we still be wearing masks? And if so, who should be wearing masks? When should be wearing when should we be wearing masks? Certain places, certain times. What what do those numbers mean in terms of decisions about masking? I think I think that's a great question. And, and there's two ways to look at it, right? So per the metrics, what those tell us, what the CDC metrics tell us that by the community level, outside of a hospital system, really activity is low and we don't need to wear a mask by that transmission level, which is what healthcare facilities are supposed to use, and that's been high for weeks here in Barry County, we should be wearing masks. Everybody, the patients, uh, family members that are visiting, staff members should all wear masks as universal source control to prevent transmission to patients, to each other. But I think, you know, from a bigger standpoint, really everybody should do their own risk assessment. So even if community levels are low, if you know you're at high risk, if you're, say, an organ transplant recipient or you have some other reason to be at higher risk, you should determine when you should wear a mask. If you're going to go on a trip, you should look at the activity level there. Unfortunately, levels are low right now, but you might be going someplace where it's a little bit higher. You might want to wear a mask on the plane, for example. Uh, so just during that short time period to keep yourself a bit pr protected. So I think there's, you know, as, as, as you know, what the CDC numbers tell us, but then also you should everybody should be doing their own independent kind of risk calculation. Yeah, so if that transmission number changes, which is probably kind of on the cusp of changing, uh, we may change what we do in the hospital. But if you're an immunocompromised patient, you will probably still want to wear a mask when you're going to a place that's high risk, you know, where there's a lot of people and it's crowded. So um, so that'll take uh, some judgment calls for people who are at risk in the future. So um so that's those metrics are one kind of surveillance, but also now we've got wastewater surveillance. And uh, how is that being done? Where is it being done? And how does that help us? Wastewater surveillance is, is one of the examples of the many different examples. We had of some really interesting and great science actually that occurred during this pandemic, during this past busy three years. And I, I think it's gonna be a really helpful tool moving forward as well to get information about disease activities in communities. So wastewater surveillance, basically you're taking a sample of water that's going into a wastewater treatment plant. And then it takes a little bit of time. They have to do some statistical smoothing to account for the water flow rate and the number of people in the population that's being served by that wastewater plant. But what they're able to do is measure the levels of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, to measure those levels of viral RNA per, per, the, per patient. And then they can follow the activity if it goes higher or lower. And that's helpful because it gets around people needing to be tested to get information. If someone's asymptomatic, for example, they're not going to go get a test. And so you may not know that they actually had COVID-19 or if someone has minimal symptoms. They don't get tested. If you're able to do this wastewater surveillance, you're able to see if the levels are going up or down. 
So right now you can't use that on its own, but it's a helpful tool, objective tool to use in conjunction with other things that you're looking at, hospitalizations, other things in your community to see as an early indicator when cases start to go up or when you start to see cases go down. Uh, Bear County, we're fortunate we have three sites here and they serve 1.275 million people. So that's a large number of people where we're getting this information from. Other counties right now don't have that, but I think it's something that we'd like to see more widely spread. And we also, in New York City was able to use that, for example, when they were looking at poliovirus, when there was concern about poliovirus in that community there. So it is a helpful tool to have so that we can get information outside of having to get people tested. So it's an easier way to get some information pretty early on about uh, virus activity in the community. Right. That has been very helpful. Um, you know, it's it's going to be helpful for COVID and for other things, too, like you mentioned. So um, do we expect this to become a seasonal virus? Will it be like flu and that it's, you know, we see higher numbers uh, in the winter and a drop in the summer or or do we know yet? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So I obviously I'm going to say the wrong answer because really anybody <laughs> that's tried to predict this has been wrong, right? Um, you know, I, I, it's, it looks like we're moving into an, an endemic phase, as you kind of mentioned earlier, kind of this is transitioning some from the pandemic to more of this endemic phase. And, you know, as, as we've seen with non-SARS-CoV-2 coronaviruses, we see those year round, but more in certain times of the year. This one hasn't as yet fallen into as predictable pattern as we see with flu and the other respiratory viruses, but it seems to be shifting some that way. And so, you know, right now we're in March. And we mentioned that cases are going down globally and locally. Um, hopefully we'll see that stay low through the summer, but I think we should probably anticipate seeing it go back up again in the fall and winter because we've seen that each year so far in the pandemic. And so likely we'll go back up again. And then the, of course, the X factor as always is if we see some completely new subvariants. So right now we're still seeing Omicron subvariants, but if we were to see a completely new one, that could potentially alter that where we might see a bump when we didn't expect it. Yeah. And then, of course, um, we saw a big resurgence of flu this year, um, a little earlier than usual. Um, but it just is a reminder, of course, that flu is still around out there waiting for us. And uh, and so uh, do you think COVID vaccines will become annual? Is there any possibility of, you know, combining a flu and COVID vaccine, maybe even an RSV vaccine with that? What about that? Very important question, and I, I think interesting to see how the patterns of, you know, we're so focused on COVID-19, but we can't forget about flu, RSV, some of these other respiratory viruses, which caused a huge problem for us this past respiratory virus season, as you mentioned. And so we really need to look at vaccines for all of those to keep you know, people in our community safe. Um, they are looking at trying to move the cadence of these boosters so people aren't having to ask every few months, should I get another dose? They're trying to move it to a more annual rhythm, similar to what we do with the flu vaccine. Um, they had hoped to have a combined flu COVID vaccine product available this year, but unfortunately that doesn't appear to be the case. It looks like it will be next year. So this year people will still need to get their four strain flu vaccine and their at least bivalent COVID booster. They're gonna be separate now, maybe next year the same. There is an RSV vaccine now that's gonna be available. And so, yes, I, I agree with you. It'd be interesting to see if that might also be looked at as something that we could combine. The more that we can combine together, the easier we can make it, the easier it's gonna be for people to get themselves protected. Yeah, and then, uh, so the bivalent vaccine, you know, it uh, people, uh, it, it became available in September, people started getting it then, but not a big uptake. Um, 
So, um, and, but some people who did get the bivalent vaccine are asking now, well, should I get a second bivalent vaccine? What are the recommend, are there any recommendations on that? Uh, any ideas from what other countries are doing? Yeah, at, at this point, there really isn't good data to support getting another one. So I'm always happy to hear that people have already had it and are interested in getting another one. And I wish we could see that same kind of excitement, right? And people that haven't gotten the bivalent booster yet. A lot of people got the primary series, but the majority of people have not gotten the bivalent booster. At this point, there's no indication, there's no recommendation to get it. And it, it doesn't really show, especially with levels being low, that that would necessarily be helpful because there's a kind of a limited time window where it's more helpful. And then kind of over time, it starts to drift back down again. And so really at this point, I think they want people to wait. And I'm, I'm we're anticipating there's going to be recommendations for people to kind of re-up or get their next booster around the same time that flu vaccines are, are starting to come out, you know, August through October timeframe in, in anticipation of an increased activity in the normal respiratory virus season. So not a repeat bivalent vaccine, but for people who have not gotten the bivalent vaccine, and by that I should clarify, bivalent meaning that it has the Omicron variant in it, as well as the original wild type uh, when the vaccine was developed. Um, so if you haven't had that vaccine, you should go ahead and get it, right? Because there is evidence that those people who have that are less likely to get uh, symptomatic and less likely to be hospitalized with Omicron variant, right? Absolutely, right. So people that have had just the primary series, it, they should still go out and get the bivalent, even with activity decreasing, because as we know, there's unpredictability to this. It takes a couple of weeks to have your immune system respond. And so we want you to have as much protection as possible. Having that bivalent and moving forward, you know, the FDA is really wanting all COVID vaccine boosters to have at least two strains, right? And at some point, will it have three? Maybe, who knows? Um, but they, having that updated booster to get that Omicron protection, because the only things that are circulating right now are Omicron subvariants. And so having that updated protection is probably going to be better for you. And some people have even questioned, well, why keep the wild type in the vaccine? You know, because we're not seeing that anymore. Um, so, uh, you know, so lots to think about on still on vaccine development. Let's talk a little bit about um, home tests. You mentioned testing and, you know, most people are doing home tests now instead of the molecular tests that, that get recorded in laboratories uh, and recorded for surveillance. Are the home tests still valid? So the home tests still work. Um, they they use, so the PCR tests that you use in the hospital systems really amplify the RNA, the genetic material of the virus. And so they're very sensitive. The home tests aren't quite as sensitive, but they're easier to do. We can do them at home. And they test a protein, a nucleocapsid antigen in the virus. And the reason I mentioned that part of it is because that's a part that doesn't mutate as quickly as the spike proteins that we hear about with all of these different variants. When we're talking about these different variants, largely we're talking about changes in the spike protein that um, is a different part of the virus than what the home test look for. And so they are still valid even with these newer subvariants. Now, it's important that people use them as per the instructions. And that's a challenge with these home tests. Usually you get two tests in the kit, and that doesn't mean it's one for you and one for your, somebody else in your house, right? What you're supposed to do is use the first test. And if it's negative, generally you repeat it in 24 to 48 hours later because the sensitivity is a little bit lower and it really counts on higher viral levels to be able to detect it. And so when your symptoms first start, you may not be able to detect it. And we've heard many anecdotal stories and, uh, where people have tested initially negative and then they recheck a day or two later and they're positive. So really important that people use the test correctly. 
Yes, we have heard a lot of those stories um, among our friends and healthcare workers. You know, when they're suspecting that they might have COVID, they test pretty early and they're negative. And then, you know, we encourage them to go ahead and test at 24 hours and then they become positive. So, so that's a good point. That's an important thing to do is to repeat the test at 24 hours. So treatment, um, you know, we have several treatment options now. Uh, what are the latest in treatment options? So the, the big change in, in treatment really um, is that the monoclonal antibodies, unfortunately, we have lost monoclonal antibodies. You know, those were really a mainstay when we first started out, as we were talking about at the beginning of the pandemic, before we had more treatments, we were using monoclonal antibodies. They work by binding that spike protein of the virus, of that SARS-CoV-2 virus, so it can't attach the receptors. And we use those initially for people that got infected to prevent them from getting more severe disease. Unfortunately, with the mutations in these variants, they mutated that spike protein, none of the monoclonal antibody products that we had available are still effective. And so we aren't able to use those anymore. And unfortunately, not only does that impact those ones we would use for people that were infected, that were at high risk for progressing to severe disease to keep them out of the hospital, but we also lost our only pre-exposure monoclonal antibody too, which was called Evusheld, two different monoclonals together and that was a great tool for us, for people that weren't expected to respond to the vaccine. They could get the vaccine, but because their immune system was so suppressed, they're not gonna have a response. And unfortunately, we don't have that available right now. So we've lost that tool. And unfortunately, since we moved further on, there's not been as much interest or push to develop new monoclonals, including a replacement for this Evusheld. So the pipeline has really kind of dried some. What we have now as our workhorses is Paxlovid, and that's nice because it's oral. Um, it's two medicines together. People take it for five days. And then the backup for that really is IV remdesivir. Um, we use IV remdesivir more for hospitalized patients because it's IV and it's easier to administer in the hospital setting. So those now are our two main workhorses as far as the treatment. And I haven't heard of or know of many things in the pipeline really at this point that are coming out as additional treatments at this, at this point. I'm not sure if, if you're aware of any, but I, I think it's kind of settle down to really Paxlovid and remdesivir as the main choices. I think there, there may be some studies going on, but nothing, you know, close to coming out. So, um, so Paxlovid, yeah, that's been a good option. Of course, it has a lot of drug interactions, makes it complicated for people that are on a lot of medications. Um, you know, but then some questions come up, is it, you know, do you really need it in a young, healthy person who gets COVID? Um, what about Paxlovid rebound? you know, who gets that and should you treat that? You know, should you should you treat it again with Paxlovid or not? Right, and I, I think this Paxlovid rebound, you know, it, it's great to have a new medication, but you know, we one of the things always we always remember, I think, is that when you start using something in larger numbers of people, we start to learn more about how, it, how it's best used, right? And in the studies, when they looked at Paxlovid, it did what, it, what it, we wanted it to do. It prevented people from become, progressing to more severe disease and ending up in the hospital, which is great. In the initial trials, they only saw about 1% of people having Paxlovid rebound. When we're talking about Paxlovid rebound, what we're talking about is that you take medicine, your symptoms initially get better, but then usually within about 10 days um, after symptoms get improved, the symptoms worsen again. And not only do your symptoms worsen, but we also learned that your viral load goes up too. People develop viremia again. Um, and now in clinical practice, now that we're using this in large groups of people, the numbers are probably closer from five to 10%, and some studies even say 15%. So a larger number of people have that rebound. 
And we're seeing it in both vaccinated and unvaccinated patients. And so I think what you've mentioned is really important for somebody that's healthy, that's not at high risk for progression to severe disease, they're probably not going to get a benefit from Paxlovid because they're not going to end up in the hospital because we're seeing less people in the hospital, less people with severe disease. It's probably still worthwhile for people that are at high risk. And so I think picking, selecting your patients carefully and selecting who needs Paxlovid or if you're at high risk yourself, you're still going to get some benefit. It's also, you should know about rebound, but most of these cases when the symptoms rebound, they're mild. People haven't ended up in the hospital afterwards. They've just had the symptoms. That being said, because the viremia can go up, what is important is if you do have rebound with your COVID symptoms after taking Paxlovid, it's generally recommended to take another antigen test because that really correlates with higher viral loads. And if your antigen test, your home test is positive when you have this rebound of symptoms, you have to start that isolation clock again so you don't transmit it to others. And we've actually anecdotally heard about people with rebound transmitting to others in their household. So that, that's a real entity. Um, so unfortunately, people don't get sick enough to end up at the hospital, but they can pose a risk to others if they have rebound of those symptoms and that viral load goes back up again. So should they get another course of Paxlovid? That's uh, been a kind of an issue that's not resolved. It is unresolved. <laughs> yeah, so I there there isn't any high level evidence that that supports it because the numbers have been low and it's hard to do studies on the rebound. I know that some providers do choose for highly immunocompromised patients. So we're talking about solid organ transplant recipients, stem cell transplant recipients, or you know, advanced AIDS, not just kind of immunocompromised, but highly immunocompromised. Some people have elected to give another five-day course. I think there's been some studies to look at whether or not those patients should start off with 10 days versus five days as another strategy too, to try and reduce that rebound. So I, I think that's an important question um, that we need to look at more so that we're using Paxlovid the best way possible to kind of re reduce those risks of rebound. Okay, so let's look at the bigger picture now. You know, um, so people haven't had to pay for Paxlovid. They haven't had to pay for vaccines. They haven't had to pay for monoclonal antibodies. Uh, but the federal COVID emergency declaration is going to end in May, on May 11th. And so what will that mean? What will happen when that emergency declaration ends? This is really important and for a number of reasons. One, one thing that's really important with that, even though the national emergency ends, I think one of the things, reasons we're having this podcast is that COVID's not going away, right? Um, so it's good that the numbers are decreasing. It's good that we're moving out of a national emergency, but it is really important that we start to consider what the landscape is going to look like when we lose some of the things that we've had over the past three years now. It's a long time period. We've really gotten used to certain things and change is always a bit challenging if it comes on in a surprise. Um, so we're going to lose access to these free over-the-counter tests that have been available and even shipped to your home. That's that's going to go away, right? And so we're going to see less free over-the-counter testing. Um, and it'll be up to the insurers, if you have insurance, to decide if they charge some, you know, some cost sharing, as it's called, for getting tested or not. And so, you know, that would, and you would anticipate that that's going to lead to people doing less testing if they have less access to free tests. The other challenge is, as you mentioned, with Paxlovid. So that's going to be moving from something that you could get for free to something that you're going to have to pay for. And it's unclear how much you're going to have to pay. Obviously, for uninsured patients, they're going to get charged the most. Um, if you have Medicare, you need to have Part B for coverage. Um, you know, Medicaid, there's probably going to be some coverage there. But if you have private insurance, you're going to probably have some cost sharing. So that's probably you'd anticipate that's going to lead to less people thinking about getting Paxlovid. And frankly, where is this most about our vulnerable patients, our uninsured patients that are at high risk, 
that we don't want to end up in the hospital. But if it's going to be really expensive for them to get Paxlovid, they're going to probably just write it out, which could be a real problem. And then the vaccine's also going to be a challenge too, right? So vaccines, you know, with, if you have insurance, insurers are required to cover uh, vaccines. Um, Medicare, if you have Part B, will cover it. And if you have Medicaid, you're covered. But if you're uninsured, that, that's going to be a challenge too. We're going to really need the, some, some help from federal and state governments to make sure that our vulnerable, uninsured, underinsured patients are, are going to get some coverage for vaccines because we know that that's helpful. Um, so that, that, that that's going to be some changes in the landscape. I, I think we're going to have issues with um, less people getting tested, less people that might be at high risk electing to get Paxlovid. And then, you know, we already have challenges with the vaccine uptake rate. This is going to add potentially another another bump there. Yeah, so there's going to be some barriers that we haven't had uh, in the in the past three years, uh, which will be significant. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, even though we expect it, uh, the, the rates to go down, you know, uh, with the season. It could be that, um, you know, with less testing uh, and uh, less treatment, we might we might see more of the disease. And certainly I think we would expect it to be, these these barriers to be significant less next winter. So um, any other um, observations you have at year three, Dr. Bowling? Well, another thing, as you were mentioning in that last part, you know, with the national emergency ending, right now the federal government has the authority to require labs to report all tests. And that includes negative tests. And when this national emergency ends in May, May 11th, the labs no longer have to report. Um, now they're re re requesting, the CDC is re requesting people to voluntarily share this information. But in reality, I think we're gonna see less labs reporting, including negative tests, which means that we're gonna lose that visibility on percent positivity. And as we talked about earlier, that's one of the metrics. So I think we're gonna have to look at different metrics using, using things like wastewater surveillance, because we're gonna have less visibility on percent positivity. And in, in regard to the three years, it's 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 been a long haul, right? So I, I think fortunately we have a better understanding of that. And I think most importantly, it's great to see cases going down, people having less severe disease, um, us having a better understanding of how to deal with this. But I think we're still seeing one of the challenges that really we saw early on and continues to be a problem, has been a problem before COVID, is that our healthcare system has some holes in it. And people that are vulnerable have less access to resources, continue to struggle, suffer, you know, more burden with this disease. And we really still need to do some significant overhauling of how our system kind of helps support healthcare for our community. Because as we know now, we're all impacted. If anybody in our community is sick, we all potentially are going to be impacted by that. Yeah, exactly. That is something that has been very clear uh, with the COVID pandemic and made more clear. So, okay, well, um, thank you for this update at year three. Uh, we've learned, as you said, we've learned a lot. And uh, I'm sure we'll continue to learn a lot about COVID. Thank you, Dr. Bowling. Thanks, Dr. Patterson.